Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. We were talking about the somatic path of approaching spirituality from working with the body and working with physical sensations. There's a wonderful, wonderful spiritual teacher, Ramana Maharshi, that many of you have heard of, who said that there are really two paths to God. There's the path of devotion, the path of the heart, and on the other hand, there's the path of the mind, of inquiring into who we are. Meditation, who am I, what's reality? And I'm claiming that there's actually a third way. I got a few complaints from people that uh, Ramana, must, Ramana says, we aren't the body, so how can that be path? Well, he also said, we're not the mind. When I'm really honest about it, my own particular path, I'm not saying this is the way that you have to do it, but what, what works for me is I'm going through my life, I notice that I'm caught in discursive thought, and then I locate that thought in my body. What is the sensation that's going on? I go from sensation to just to being in my body, just what are the sensations? And then from sensations, I go into my heart. That's really my main practice, using my body to go into my heart. And then, of course, as they talk about very clearly in Tibetan Buddhism, the way to go into non-duality, into wholeness, which is very important because that's what we die into. And it's very useful to be practicing being in wholeness before we die, so it's not such a shocking experience, that it's much easier to bear the profound, boundless spaciousness of our true nature if we've been diving into and surrendering into that while we're still alive. One of the ways into the heart is through gratitude. Not only loving kindness, not only compassion, but gratitude. And in fact, we're not grateful because we're happy, but we're happy because we're grateful. There's been a lot going on in this country, in this world. Pandemic, election in California. There's been smoke, so you can't go outside. There's the threat of fire, on and on and on. Many people are financially insecure right now, but can we use gratitude as a a path into the heart? So what I'm suggesting here is that it's very useful for us postmodern people, most of us in America here, to have a really robust practice where we can be dealing with pandemic and politics and all the other things of our lives and keep coming back to a deepening presence, a deepening presence, so that we can be more alive and as we're going on, we're preparing to have a more conscious life and a more conscious death. Right now, can everybody just just check in what's going on in your body? We don't have to call it a meditation. You can if you like, (laughs) but just be with the sensations in your body. They're changing all the time. Even if there's some place in your body that's painful or tight, if you 
pay attention carefully enough, it's always changing. It's not a lump. It's a constantly changing series of uh, moment-to-moment sensations. And as you be with what's predominating, can you even then begin to expand to feeling your whole body at the same time? You're not focusing on just one thing, but you're just letting awareness fill the body. One cannot be thinking and being with sensations at the same time. We tend to get caught in discursive thought, believe our thought, and this is a way to gradually train to disengage from being caught in discursive thought. As sensations arise, there is the tendency then to say, I like that sensation, I don't like that one so much. Oh, what's going on down there in my lower belly? What's going on in my right shoulder? Can you just be with the changing nature of sensation and even begin then to experience sensation as spaciousness? So that the body on one hand is, yes, flesh and blood and bones and ligaments and all those things. And on the other hand, it's just consciousness being in each cell of the body. Just awakeness, spaciousness. And as we experience that, can we then go into the heart, taking a few breaths into the center of your chest So that we're not just being with sensation, but we're being more interested in our relationship with the sensation than the sensation itself. Is it a loving relationship? Is it a grateful relationship? Is it compassionate if what we're experiencing is difficult or painful? The nature of the heart philosophically in Buddhism, is boundless spaciousness. So the more we go into the heart, we're dissolving solidity, we're trusting the spacious nature, and in fact, the child developmental stage that one goes through to be able to rest in the heart is learning to have appropriate boundaries. Does our awareness of the body stop at the boundaries of our skin? Can we be with the whole body? Can we lovingly be with the whole body? And can then we even then begin to expand beyond the body so that we're feeling this loving spaciousness within and without, without distinction? This brings us to a meditation that I've developed called the two-breath meditation, We've done this before, but it's particularly appropriate right now. There's two breaths. The first breath is up-down. The second breath is in-out. And I'll explain that as we do it. So on the first in-breath, you imagine that there's a little hook on the top of your head, and God is just gently pulling you up straight so that there's a sense of motivation and willingness to come into your body. 
And in the first out-breath, you drop down into the lower belly, the hara, becoming centered a few inches down below your navel. On the second in-breath, you breathe in to your heart as if there were nostrils in the center of your chest. On the second out-breath, you breathe out into spaciousness infinitely in all directions, front, back, right, left, up, down. Once again, up on the first in-breath, dropping down, getting centered on the first out-breath. Second in-breath, breathing into the heart. Second out-breath, breathing out into spaciousness from the heart, surrendering into space. If you've done this for a few minutes and you feel that you have the foundation of being centered, you can skip the up-down and just be breathing into the heart, out into spaciousness, letting go of the, the motivation and foundation. Breathing into the heart, breathing out into spaciousness. In a way, can we let unconditional love be the center of awareness? In Vipassana, often the breath or walking sensations are at the center of awareness. Can unconditional love, can there be something we call devotional Vipassana, that what we're paying attention to is the reality that the nature of consciousness is love. That even if we're feeling grumpy, even if we're feeling tired, there is a love that goes beyond preference. The beloved can only be everything. One of the great Christian saints, St. Teresa of Lusso said, pray only for God's presence. My Guru Maharaj, he said, if, if you love God, you overcome all impurities. It is better to see God in everything than to try to figure it out. So I have a PhD in trying to figure it out. <laughs> and I don't know how far that got me. Okay, so can we come back into the room and be resting in the heart and have a conversation? Clearly, there are different qualities to the heart. Compassion is one of the most important because it's what allows us to keep the heart open when we're experiencing something that is causing suffering. Compassion is the ability to be open-hearted in the presence of suffering, suffering of our own, suffering of someone else's. And compassion is often misunderstood as compassion is something we send to somebody else. But compassion is a state of being. It's compassion with. So, for instance, when I talk about having compassion for Donald Trump, many people grumble mightily and say, why would I forgive him after all these things that he's done? And the reason is that if the notion of Donald Trump closes your heart, you're the one that's suffering. Can you realize all the implications of that expression, Donald Trump, and keep your heart open? 
It doesn't mean you like him or want to be around him or approve of him, or maybe you do. Maybe it's Nancy Pelosi that, that gets you all riled up. Uh, whatever example works for you. But eventually, can we get to a place where no matter what concept, no matter what perception arises, we can meet it with an open heart? That was the gift of being around the guru. He, she was profoundly open-hearted, completely independent of what the immediate situation was, so that I had the experience of being unconditionally loved, no matter what thoughts were going through my mind. I remember once I happened to get the prime real estate seat of being right in front of Maharaji. We were at one of the temples in India up at Kenshi in the Himalayas. So he was talking to some people and I had his foot in my hand. Uh, I was just blissful. I was holding his foot and I was saying my mantra. And after a few minutes, I started feeling how, how lucky I am. And as soon as I started feeling I, he started pulling his foot away. And then I quickly let go of I and started saying my mantra again and he relaxed his foot. And a few minutes later, I said, wow, this is great. I'm really having this wonderful experience. He started pulling his foot away. And it, was, it was so clear that as long as I was in this wide open space, there was not really two of us. There was not my hand and his foot. There was just life unfolding. But as soon as I got into me, that was an uncomfortable place for his foot to be in a certain way. We often think of love and compassion as activities that we cultivate, we get better at. But there's other ways to look at these qualities. One of the ways is that they are already our true nature. They can be spelled with capital L's and capital C's, love and compassion. That when we get out of the way, we are love, we are compassion. And another way to look at it is that it's something we can receive. That the guru, that the deity, that the higher power, that the universe itself is showering love on us each moment, something to be grateful for. In Tantric Hinduism, all form, matter, energy, thought is seen to be the mother. So we have this relationship with the mother. Can we love the mother even when she's being difficult, even when she's really bringing us back to being present in a way that is uncomfortable? So what we're talking about here is the possibility of using sensations, using our relationship with our body as a way of going beyond thought, coming back to being present, and then from sensation, using that as, as the surrender to the heart. And then from even from there, the heart is the, the direct pathway into non-duality, into boundless spaciousness. Resting in boundless spaciousness, still being able to talk, still being able to listen, not knowing what I'm going to say next, but not particularly caring. Maybe there's not an eye who's even doing it. Okay, so what we're talking about here is embodied love. It's certainly possible to feel love and get spaced out. We're talking over here about embodied love. The notion is in Buddhism there the four noble truths that some of you I'm sure are very familiar with, but maybe a few aren't. Uh, they're so basic that I haven't really talked or thought about them for a very, very long time. First noble truth is that life is unsatisfactory. Life in duality creates suffering. 
Second noble truth is that suffering or unsatisfactoriness is caused by grasping. Third noble truth is let go of grasping, no more suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Noble Path. Right speech, right livelihood, right concentration, right meditation. And there's four more of them that I have no idea what they are. Okay. <laughs> Probably some of you know all of the, the eight. Right, right contemplation, meditation, concentration. Okay. So you said... You, you started out there, Veronique, by saying, uh, that, that, uh, reality is, is causing you to have acidic speech. That's not quite how you put it, but you completely let yourself off the hook and blame the external circumstance for why you had acidic speech. And as long as we're, as long as we're blaming the environment or something outside of ourselves for how we're behaving or how we're feeling, that in that moment, healing is not going to be happening. There's this very wonderful slogan in the Lojong teachings of Tibetan Buddhism, drive all blames back into yourself so that it's our response to what's going on out there that's causing the suffering. But the two people can have the same medical or dental procedure, the same amount of pain. One of them suffers, the other one doesn't. So the first thing, before we even think about what right speech is or isn't, wrong speech or unrightful speech is not because the environment's causing us to do that. And right speech is basically speech that does not cause suffering. Anytime that we have a judgmental thought or words coming out of our mouths saying that's a bad person, even kind of like friendly gossip, I remember my, my old friend Joseph Goldstein said at one point he decided to do a spiritual practice where he didn't do any gossiping or talking about other people. And he had a hard time finding anything to talk about when he's around other people, right? <laughs> so he said, all of a sudden I was practically silent. There was nothing to talk about anymore. Some other wise person said something like, Inferior people talk about other people. Medium people talk about uh, things. And the best people talk about ideas, something like that. And that's kind of judgmental in itself, I think. But if we go back to that two-breath meditation and unpack it a little bit, that first breath of feeling motivated and then dropping down into the belly, being centered, you'll notice that as soon as you're having acidic, speech, speech that's not right speech, we're uncentered. We're up in our heads, we're reacting to something, we're caught. There's a sense of resistance in the body. There's something going on in the body that feels unpleasant. I guarantee it. So that this practice of using sensation to get out of the mind, so that like right now, for instance, if if you were to think about a political figure that you really don't like, and we're not talking about speech here, we're talking about thought, but it's really the same thing. What kind of thoughts come up when you think about Trump or Pelosi or William Barr or uh, Mike Pompeo or on and on, the, the list goes. Uh, and as those thoughts come up, what's going on in your body? And can you just go into the body? And can you go from that, those specific sensations into just resting in the whole body? 
And you'll, you'll notice then that the mind quiets down. And then go from the body into the heart. Can you be in your heart? And I can say Mike Pompeo, Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi. And your heart doesn't close. So that in, in, in Buddhism, the notion is that the totally awakened mind has three qualities. One of them is clarity, the knowing quality. You're there with what's going on. You're not lost somewhere. The second quality is spaciousness, which means no concepts, particularly no concepts of self. When we're lost in concept, we're not directly experiencing our body. We're experiencing a concept of our body. We're not directly experiencing another human being. We're experiencing concepts of another human being. Most people are going around lost in concepts a lot of the time so that relationships are pretty unsatisfying. There's not that that completely naked, intimate meeting of two beings. There's my concepts and your concepts are kind of seeing how do we intertwine or how do we bounce off of each other. And this notion then of going beyond concept spaciousness is very threatening because the I is being avoided and uh, it's in a very real sense, it's like ego death. But the third quality of the awakened mind is naturally arising compassion and activity. That we are compassion. That right speech will come out of us very naturally if we just become present and open. We don't have to try even. In fact, trying is what's getting us in trouble in the first place. That we think we have to get from here to another place better. The Buddha said something like, you are what you think. So, I mean, e- even if you're in a room all by yourself, a hermetically sealed box, and you're having negative thoughts about somebody else, it's hurting you. And in some ways, putting that into the universe, uh, this negative energy about that other person. So at least it's hurting you. Let's just, just, let's just leave it at that. But I've noticed that I can be in a room full of people, particularly if I'm facilitating a group. And it's a, a lot more noticeable when it's not happening via Zoom, but we're actually in a room together. And if I'm feeling like I'm having a bad day and I'm, I'm kind of lost in my mind a bit, I can feel how it's affecting the group. And if I say, okay, I'm just going to go back into my heart, breathe into my heart, breathe out spaciousness, it affects, it, it affects the group energy. And doing Tong Len, doing taking and sending, affects the other person. It certainly affects the person who's doing it. But I could tell you all kinds of stories about how it affects the, the object of the practice. Another notion in Buddhism, and I, I want to make clear to the new people that this is not a Buddhist seminar. <laughs> it's like, I'm more of a Christian and a Hindu than a Buddhist, but it's easy to talk about Buddhism. The notion is that everybody wants to be happy. I want to be happy. You want to be happy. And we want the people we love to be happy, right? You want your daughter to be happy. You want the people that you love to be happy. But as our practice deepens, this I that I want to be happy begins to expand. Fundamentally, we aren't just connected. We are one consciousness. It's not like I'm over here shooting loving kindness or compassion to you over there. It's we are one being. And even though 
we're living in a society that is firmly embedded in this delusion of we're separate perceiving entities, perceiving an objective separable reality. And in fact, that's not, that's 180 degrees from the truth that we're creating, that perception is creation, right? So what we're saying here is that I'm not separate from that person that I'm, that I quote unquote am doing Tong Len for. There's just one consciousness and it's filtered through each of us, but it's also inseparable. In Buddhism, there are all these complicated ideas of dependent origination or it's a level that usually our mind is not operating on. Generally, we think you're in, in New York City. I'm in Northern California. We're 3,000 miles apart. And at one level, that's true, but that does not in any way deny or invalidate the fact that you and I are not at all separate. You, that's what being around Maharaji kept showing me that, I mean, even that story about holding his foot, it was not his foot in my hand is we were connected. We were one being. And when I started falling back into my egoic, oh, look at what I'm doing, that assumed separation, he could feel, he could feel that. And, I mean, I certainly can't pretend that I'm living in that place all the time, but I try to remember that when I'm with people, just the, my very thoughts are affecting them. And if, if, if you've been around dying people, if you've been around tiny babies, they're often very, very psychic. They're, they really know exactly what's going on in the room because they're not identified with their separateness so much. Some dying people with the right kind of support or the right kind of background. As they're approaching death, they're not busy saying, oh, I'm this body, the body's, my body is cancer, and what's going to happen with my, my car and my money and all these things. They're just, they're becoming more and more essentialized, and they're becoming more and more resting in that wholeness, which is who we are already. So that in some way, dying slowly and having the support to realize that that we are one being is a great advantage, although not <clears throat> always a pleasant one. One of the things we're exploring in this group that is not new information, but I think I put it together in a way I haven't seen any place else, that there's this parallel between somatic development, stages of early childhood development, awakening the chakras, stages of Buddhism. So that as we talked about, and I'm going to do this really very summarized because there's a few new people, but very early, second trimester at about 12 months old, a, a small child learning to be grounded, trusting, being dependent. That, uh, and when that isn't happening fully, fear arises. To the extent that you had any kind of trauma, illness, feelings of abandonment, we all did. I mean, I had very loving parents. I had certain accidents in my early life that I've talked about before. I'm not perfectly grounded. I'm certain things that arise, fear arises in me. Okay. Then from 12 months to maybe two or three years old, being centered, dropping down into the lower belly, uh, going beyond guilt and shame, moving from dependence to independence, being able to create in the world, being able to manifest God's energy through us. People in our societies are often going, in our society, often going around apologizing a lot, feeling some shame, guilt for who they are, particularly 
people of a certain generation, maybe younger people don't do that as quite as much, I don't know. But what we're getting to here is that being grounded, being centered, creates an independent, integrated personality structure that then can bear the spaciousness of the open heart, right? Because if you really go into the heart, the I dissolves there. It's not I'm loving you, but just love is happening. It's certainly possible to go into that love without the foundation, but it's very fragile. It depends on the environment being supportive. But the point I'm trying to get to here is that the energetic lesson that this small child learns between the ages of five and eight in order to have conscious relationship is having appropriate boundaries. If you and I have, here's me, here's my energetic being, here's you, you can be in New York and I can be here and we can be having this kind of relationship. And then I start changing my energy and I start moving toward you. I'll do that right now. It changes the way we're energetically relating. And then suppose we get to that where we're touching. That there's me and there's you and there's a point where we're completely meeting. And then like even you suggested, there can be overlap where at the energetic, physical, body, energy, body level, there's an overlap. And then finally, there's where we completely merge, which happens occasionally through deep meditation or sexuality or whatever it might happen to be. One can begin to practice that merging with other people. When does it feel safe to have you and me and us? Maybe you're driving in a car with somebody, and there's somebody in the driver's seat and somebody in the passenger seat. Very often, we're each in our individual energetic bubbles. We're, we're, we're not touching each other. You're walking down the street in the Upper West Side where you live, and everybody's kind of contained in their energetic bubble because there's so much aggression and craziness walking up and down the sidewalk. But at times, we can choose to merge with other people. You don't even have to say anything. I mean, can, can each of us right now breathe into the heart? So let me even backtrack. So before we get to the heart, there's being down in the belly. That's the, in Japanese, the lower belly is called the har, which means sea of chi. It's where all the energy in the universe goes through us. That's the energy that creates the boundary. Can you breathe into your belly and breathe out a boundary that's as big as your skin? Breathe into your belly and breathe out a boundary that's 12 inches outside of your skin. Can you breathe into your belly and breathe out a boundary that's as big as the room? Doing this is almost like going to the gym. You're, you're creating uh, the ability to have boundaries that are appropriate. Now, I don't go around creating boundaries all the time, but when I'm in a, a situation where something feels really weird, it's sometimes because I'm not in the appropriate boundary for this particular situation, right? You're a bunch of, you're around people who are really super aggressive and you're open and something like that. I'll give you an example. I taught a workshop with Stephen Levine years ago and there was a woman who we thought was going to die at the workshop. She didn't die. The end of the workshop, her Husband came, put her in the back of the station wagon and drove her home. It's kind of shocking. I lived in Berkeley. She lived in Marin in Mill Valley. And uh, about a week later, I got a call saying if I wanted to see her again, I should get over there quickly because she didn't have too many hours left to live. So I drove over there. Her house was situated in a place where uh, it was only a few minutes from getting off the freeway to being at her bedside. And I came in. 
And I sat down and I started talking to her as if she were the person I'd been with a week ago. I didn't open up my boundary and include her and feel really what was going on. And I started feeling really super uncomfortable because she was not that person anymore. She was a week closer to dying and she was actually very close to dying. And my thoughts felt like bowling balls until I realized what was going on. I opened up my boundary, made it really permeable. We connected. And then there's nothing even to say anymore. We just hung out in love for a while and then I left. So boundaries can be big. They can be small. They can be dense. They can be permeable. Sometimes it's nice to have a really permeable boundary to feel what's going on with people around you. There are people who get stuck in a permeable boundary. People have a, a big permeable boundary and they're overwhelmed by the energy of the world. There are people that get stuck in the big dense boundary, like the bull in the china shop. Politicians often, you know, they take over the room. They can't feel what's going on with other people. As a therapist, it's useful to have a permeable boundary to really feel what's going on with your client. So that at some spiritual level, yes, we're all one and we're all we're all super connected and all those things. But at a, at a more relative level, there's this whole stuff about boundaries and energy and are we connected or uh, do we need to keep some separation? So there's this term, compassion fatigue, which I think is a misnomer and almost a dangerous idea, that there is no such thing as compassion fatigue, that if you are compassionate, your heart is boundlessly spacious and there's room for all the suffering in the universe. There is something we could call almost compassion fatigue, <laughs> where uh, we feel somebody suffering and it resonates suffering in us. And we start suffering in relationship to what we're experiencing with this other human being. If we're really clear where the suffering is coming from, it's much easier to work with it than if we think it's caused by this other person. And there are studies that show that, for instance, that therapists who work with a lot of people notice that the, that certain clients drain them and certain clients don't drain them. And at first they thought maybe the clients that drain me are the ones that have the most difficult intractable problems. But it turned out, no, it's the clients that I can't connect with fully. So that if you can connect with somebody who's even psychotic or something, it's not going to drain you if you stay wide open. There's, there's nothing then that the other person's suffering is, is sticking to, which doesn't even preclude you being able to think about something and think of the best treatment plan and, and things like that. But that once again, compassion is a state of being. It's not, I'm having compassion for my client. It's a much more moment to moment, subtle process of being aware of where you're getting caught in thoughts about the other person, where there's some tightness happening in you in response to the other person's suffering. Maybe not even that you're bothered by the suffering, but that you're bothered by you can't quite figure out to do the perfect thing, that your, your personality is such that I want to be the perfect psychologist or something like that. So that the, the fatigue that's arising is your character structure meeting the situation in a way that is not completely open and spacious. We then begin using each life experience as 
information as an experiment, as a, as a, a curious experiment of what kind of people, what kind of situations, what kind of uh, experiences in my life are, are generating suffering in my life. As long as we're firmly embedded in identifying with a separate I, we have to work with that I. We have to use that I to begin to see we can dissolve the I. One of my friends who was a Buddhist psychologist said, you have to become somebody before you can become nobody. And yes, we are nobody in a certain sense, but as long as we think we're somebody, we have to begin to skillfully, with some effort, work with that faulty assumption. As Suzuki Roshi said, we're all perfect, but there's still room for improvement. So the, the, both of those things are true at the same time. The ego is very persistent, and our job is not to defeat it or destroy it because we can't, but that one way of looking at the spiritual path is understanding what the ego is and what it is not. It's a useful tool. It helps us get through life, but it's not who we are. It's like we're breathing, we're thinking, we're egoing, we're eating. It's, it's a verb. It's something that we do. And there is this, this profound delusion of separateness that we're, we're working to dissolve. And it's, it's very challenging because it's directly confronting our fear of death. 